for me, it's just I'm, I'm just a picture person. How many of you guys would say that? You just love you some pictures. I know we have some avid photographers in the room. How many avid photographers? Okay, a little bit less than that. Pictures are an interesting thing, aren't they? I mean, and they've certainly progressed. Okay, like back in the day, I don't even know how they took pictures, right? But, but eventually, like, they, they invented this color camera, and then soon we had cameras everywhere. Like, literally at every turn on our phone, we're able to constantly capture beauty, and then instantly post it to Facebook. Like, that's pretty much what we do with pictures now, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to take something awesome, and then instantly everyone's going to see it. Listen, there's that one picture for you, isn't there? Like that one picture that someone took or that you took along the lines that you cherish because it captured like this very precious, special moment for you. For some of you parents, you have a picture of you holding like your first baby. You remember that picture? And it like, it just, it captured the emotion, it captured the beauty, it captured everything for you. Some of you, you have uh, some, uh, some pictures of your wedding day, right? You, you remember those? And some of them have faded a little bit, right? Because you were married a while ago, praise God for that, that you're still uh, married and rocking. But others of us, we like look through and it captures the pose, because that's really what wedding pictures are, most of them, right? I, uh, a couple days ago, was on top of uh, Peak 8 in Breckenridge, and I snapped this uh, picture now, uh, this was taken on Monday of this week, just a couple days ago. Uh, that's right, there's still snow on top of uh, Breckenridge. And um, I don't know, like, I, I took this picture. Heidi and I were on the lift. It was very romantic. And, uh, I mean, can we disagree? That's a pretty amazing picture. I mean, it captures the beauty of the mountains, the grandeur of creation. It was, it was beautiful. And when you see a picture like that, it grabs your heart, right? Like, it, it captures you. Because of its beauty. Now I've, I firmly believe no matter how many pictures you take. That there is nothing as beautiful. As the constant capturing of the scripture. There is a constant beauty. A constant revealing of the text of God's word. That is consistently capturing the power of the character of God. And in the text that we have tonight. I'm telling you right now. It captures something that's unexpected. It captures a beauty that is so deep. If we can just begin to see it, I'm telling you right now, our hearts will be stirred to affection of a great God. It captures that beauty. Uh, but before we get there tonight, we need, to, we need to remember where we've been. And where we've been is harsh. Where we've been is some very hard statements. And so I want to remind you kind of the, the last several statements that's been made in the book of Hebrews, which were studying the first harsh statement made back in the middle parts of chapter 5 he he tells his readers that you've become dull in hearing uh, which the uh, the the greek form here is you become sluggish you become slothful you become and you remember stupidly forgetful that's not like a, a nice thing a nice like coding thing to say it's very difficult next slide he says this that you ought to be teaching but you aren't the whole subject of the last several verses in hebrews has been christian maturity and what I've taught you and told you and as we've wrestled with the text is that the reality in the Christian American church is that we've accepted a much less mature picture than the Bible calls true followers of God. Then he says this, not just should you be teachers but you're not, you actually need someone to teach you again. This isn't a nice statement, this is a tough thing to hear. He says this, next slide, he says you need milk not solid food. And uh, another point in the, in the text, he calls them a child. 
You should be a teacher, you're, you're not. And, and so much so that you're literally a babe. You should have matured. You should be an adolescent at least, but you're not. You still need milk. And then he says this, probably the harshest statement of them all. You, if remaining unrepentant, will be cursed and in the end burned. I don't know about you, but that's not like, you know, that's not on a Chinese uh, fortune cookie. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, this is not like the most encouraging thing to say. This is where we've been, and I want to ask you this. When you're challenged, when someone says harsh things to you, what is your natural first inclination? What do you do? Now, I'm not talking about, because I know your instant reaction is, well, well, well it, just, it depends on the person. It depends on how they said it. It depends on their body language. It depends on if I know them. Your gut reaction, when someone challenges you, when they dig in to you, when they call you out on something, what is your natural inclination? Uh, for some of you, is, it, is your natural reaction just defensive? And you don't need to raise your hand, but is that you? Is that Someone challenges you, and the very first thing that comes out is just this very defensive spirit. No, that's not me. No, you don't, you don't know me. No, you don't understand the situation. For some of you, is it anger? It's not that you, it's not that you think that, that the things aren't necessarily true. You just get angry. Anyone could challenge you. It could be someone who is your closest friend, but at the thought of being challenged, it's just this instant inclination to anger. And still yet, maybe for some of you, at the thought of being challenged, it humbles you. It like puts you in this place where you just sink into the words almost. Now, the writer of Hebrews has certainly challenged. He's certainly been harsh. And if he stops here, if he just stops at these words, I think we would be a little bit less affected potentially because we would just see this as hard, harsh truth. But he doesn't stop here. And he, in my opinion, does one of the most beautiful things in Hebrews. So open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Super excited about this text tonight, guys, if you couldn't tell. Just really believe that this text is transforming, can truly grab our hearts and attention. Hebrews uh, chapter 6, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved... We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And verse 12, look at this, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. A beautiful capturing of God's word. Put up verse 9 for me. Though we speak in this way. So what is he saying? He's, he's, he's admitting that it's been a little bit hard. I mean, I literally just challenged the fact that there's some of you who are just religious in your practice, in your pious acts of Christianity, and the reality is you're not a follower of Christ at all. And in the end, just like Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And he will say, I do not know you. So he says, look, though we speak this way, and I know it's hard, and I know it's harsh, yet in your case, um, I know in your own Bible reading, it's tough sometimes to like get the little nuances of the scripture 
That's why I really encourage people, instead of like trying to read the Bible in a month like some of you do, yeah, I got this Bible reading plan uh, from online somewhere, and I'm, I'm, it's really cool. I'm reading Genesis to Revelation in three weeks. I'm like, are, what are you, are you serious? And, and what happens is when you get on a Bible reading plan like this, it's really advantageous and you feel really encouraged, but the, the problem is you'll miss this nuance. Yet in your case... From chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through chapter 6, verse 8, do you know that every single time the writer is talking, he is talking in the third person. He says things like those and they, and now look what he says. Yet in what? In your case. Now, what's this next word? Beloved. One mention in Hebrews. One. Beloved. I know I've said some hard things. I know this, this challenge has been tough, and I know I've been speaking to you in this way, he says, but in your case, and then he says this word, beloved, literally the only time he says it in the entire scripture. Now, I need to show you something before we move on. Is that cool? You don't have a choice. Ephesians 4. Now, look at this. Look at this. I need you to see this. Unbelievable. Three weeks ago, when we began this section on maturity, I read for you this text, and I didn't realize it when we were studying it then, what would happen at the end of this. Crazy. Look at this. Uh, Ephesians 4.13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, we're looking at this text as the push for maturity. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children. I was challenging you that in the church... Our desire is to not raise up and cultivate immature believers who continue to foster more immaturity. And the way that happens is we get passionate about the young followers of Christ in our body. Why? Because we don't want to see them tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, which there is much, much false teaching and doctrine and theology out there. Can we agree? And so if there are those, can we agree, right? You're like, no, there's no false stuff out there at all. It's all perfect. No, it's not. So many people at every corner trying to deceive, pull away from this precious gospel. And so he says, no, no, no. We need to have a passion for the babes in Christ because these people will, will try to, uh, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, pull these children away. No, no, no. That's what we read. I would have never realized what would come next. Look at this. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Now, you read it, and at first you're like, okay, Mark's really excited about something, and I'm not sure what it is, right? But if you can just see it for a second, the writer in Ephesians, with it, which is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, listen. Connect speaking the truth in love with what? With maturity. With growing up in Christ, there is a connection between maturity and speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which, uh, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, Go back to verse 9. 
hard truth, hard teaching, and then look what he does. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. This is like for us, one of the greatest examples just to see outside of Jesus, the truth being spoken in love. Hard truth, I'm not shying away from it, I'm not running from it, I'm going to tell you exactly what it is as the Holy Spirit is inspiring this man to write what the truth is, I'm not going to run away from it, and guess what? It's all out of love. And I look into our community, and I look into Christian culture in America, and I believe speaking the truth in love is one of our greatest detriments. I, I, I believe we're really good at speaking the truth in envy. I think we're really good at speaking the truth in hatred. I think we're really good at speaking the truth with a litany of emotions. And listen to this. I think we're really good at loving with cowardice. Some of the most loving people that you know, and I use that word lightly, you consider loving because they never challenge a thing. They're so encouraging to be around. They're so frothy at times. They're so, everything is just great all the time. They never challenge a thing. And so you love those people. And you would call those people loving too. You would say, now, though, now that person has the corner on love. You get around them, it's going to be incredibly easy. They'll never challenge. They'll never speak in or look into your life. They'll never speak the truth in love. They'll just love. Now, um, you probably lean one way or the other. I would say some of you, you're really good at speaking the, the truth. You know the truth? Pretty passionate about it. Every once in a while, you land on speaking the truth in love, but most often, you're just really good at speaking the truth, right? You find yourself in a lot of arguments about doctrine that end up leading nowhere. You find yourself in tangents that are struggling. Others of you, you lean towards that loving and cowardice. And I want to encourage you with this. It is hard. Speaking the truth in love is one of the hardest things we ever do. And you know what? That's why it scares us so much. That's why we sit in fear so much. That's why the thought of writing what the writer of Hebrews does, we literally will run from it. Why? It's become one of the most difficult things in the Christian church because of how it is received. The one time we really love somebody and we see something in their life that they can really be encouraged by and then we go and we share the truth and I mean we've prayed over it and we've labored over it and we have sought our heart to make sure our motive is right and then that Christian brother or sister looks us in the eye and literally runs the other direction. And what does it teach us? No way. I will never even think about doing that again. This relationship is over. I approach them in love. I try to seek them out in care. And then they look at me and call me a Christian moron and say that I'm an idiot and say that I'm prideful and it's all about me. Some of you have been there, right? And so what do we do? What does that create then? It creates a whole Christian culture where everything is just great, isn't it? You, you're not really sinning. You're not really struggling, at least not enough for me to call you on it. 
everyone's just fine. Let's just come together. We'll, we'll carry each other in our Christian circles and we'll all feel great and we'll all seem so loving. And it's cowardice. We're sitting underneath fear. We're sitting underneath pride and envy. So uh, let me give you an example. This will help. I think I had some friends uh, out of college approach me one day. Now, for those of you that know me, I'm a, I'm a very optimistic person, okay? Uh, people say that, you know, you're either the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. My, like, I have, like, my glass is, like, more than full. Like, I just, everything for me. I just, I see it in a positive light. Very optimistic person. And back in the day, and every once in a while still now, it caused me to exaggerate a little bit, right? Now, do any of you guys struggle with exaggeration at all? Like, you're just like, that's me. Okay. So you feel me now, right? Um, so back in, the, back in college, especially, I had this leaning. If something was awesome, like I put six adjectives in front of it. You know what I'm saying? No, it's incredibly, ridiculously amazing. You know, I would exaggerate just because I was so fired up about it, you know? And, and so finally, some brothers of mine came and sat down with me. And they looked me in the eye. And, and again, this sounds like I'm making light of it, but it was really hard to hear. Mark, um, here's the deal. We think you've got an eye problema. Uh, we, we, think that, we think that you exaggerate too much. And so it causes people to question what you're saying or not is true. You're so high about life at times that what we've seen is because of your exaggeration, it makes you come off at times that what you're not saying is true, that, that, that we have to question everything. This is back when I was 22, 23. Now, my first instinct, and I'm just being honest with you, my first gut, like I wanted to exaggerate their coming deaths. You know what I'm saying? Like I'll show you an exaggeration right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, but listen to this. It was a couple days later, I was sitting there thinking to myself, what did that, what did the, that group of men have to gain? What did they have to gain? For themselves? Nothing. No gain. Except my sanctification, my holiness, my growing in Christ. Are you with me? And that's when I sat back and I realized that speaking the truth in love is often seen in just speaking the truth in general because what's to gain? How many relationships have you put on the line for simply speaking the truth when you had not a single thing to gain and everything to lose. And yet the people hearing it are like, you're prideful, you're envious, and you're like, are you serious? This is the hardest thing in the world for me to do, to sit here and confront you. And I remember looking across the table from those guys, and they were shaking. They didn't want to call me out on that. Mark, you, you're, you, maybe you struggle with, you know, just like, spit it out. You know, what is it? You're an exaggerator. I hate you. You know, let's... Right? But listen, what happens when all of a sudden we see it from that perspective? That the love piece of speaking the truth is maybe most seen in just the fact that the truth is being shared. And so then we don't run away in cowardice anymore. Then all of a sudden our ears and our spirit hear it in a tone not of hatred, of envy, but of love and of truth. And if that person is truly concerned about my sanctification and growth in Christ, then I say bring it on. 
But it begs the question, doesn't it? Do you really care? I love this question of the church. I think it's the age-old question. Do we really care about our brothers and sisters' growth in Christ? And isn't that a piece of the point of this whole rhetoric of maturity? Do you care? And what the writer displays is, guided by the Holy Spirit in a prime example, I care. So much so that I will share the only beloved word used in the entire book of Hebrews to teach you hard truth, but I truly care. Now, I have much more to say, and you're like, how? I have much more to say on this topic. I want to move on, and we're going to come back to it. Look at this. Beloved, we feel sure of better things. Now, this may seem like a backhanded encouragement, but it's not at all. It's a true encouragement. Because what did he just say in verse 8? There's going to be some of you living in religious piety that will literally find yourself cursed and burned. But he says, no, not of you. I feel sure, the writer says, of better things, things that belong to salvation. So just when the readers were beginning to question their salvation, all of a sudden, he brings in this word of encouragement. And I want to encourage you with this. Many of you last week, you left with that same perspective. And I'm not saying questioning your salvation all the time is a bad thing because it's sometimes the realization that we are just living as Christian robots, not really grasping the truth and letting it, as God has said, making us a new creation. Right? Now, the answer to this question, are you, are you questioning your faith? Are you questioning? Are you doubting? Be encouraged by this. And then he says this in verse 10. I love this. Look at this, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints. He says that the answer to your question is what? Is what? Justice. Now, this seems strange. And I know when, like when I throw out the word justice, like, it, like we instantly think of a courtroom, and that's not necessarily bad, and we instantly are like, so what, what does he mean by this? I want to tell you this right now. Verse 9, I love and I'm obsessed, and we're going to keep coming back to. This, this piece here on God's justice is beautiful. And what does he connect it with? First, he connects it with assurance. Because of God's justice... You can be assured. Why? Because you have been loving the saints for who? For who? For who? What does it say? For whose name? For his name. So what is he saying? Your works, your love of the saints, reveals the fact that you have truly grasped the gospel because you're loving the saints for whose name's sake? For his. So your fruit is genuine, your faith is real. And so you can be encouraged that God cannot, because as Psalm 111 says, His hands are filled with justice, He cannot go back on His promise. And His promise is this. If you believe in His Son, in His Son's death, in His Son's resurrection, in His Son's perfection, in His Son's atoning sacrifice, in what Jesus has done, if you believe that, 
that when the Lord looks at you on the day of judgment, justice will be served. How? You will be seen as innocent because of Christ. That's justice. It seems unfair. What we deserve is death, but justice will be served because of who Christ is. So that's what he says. Your, your, your faith is proving genuine. Why? Because your works are for his name's sake. And God cannot go back on his justice. But this next piece is huge. Justice frees me and frees you to love. Have you ever thought about that before? Justice frees me and frees you to love. When we start thinking about the word justice, we instantly think of like handcuffs and things that are actually holding us back. Not in this term, my friends. Justice frees us to love God because God in his power through his son Jesus has allowed relationship with him. And in that way, justice frees us to love him. Listen, justice frees us to love the brothers and sisters of Christ because together we have been saved by grace through faith. And so because of that collective justice, I'm free to love you. Last and hardest. I love me some justice, and it's because of this third one. Justice frees me to love my enemies. I shared with you guys a couple of weeks ago that it's a point in my ministry when an elder had ripped me to shreds, and it was very difficult. You know why I can love that guy? And this may sound weird to say, I can love that guy because God will have the final say. I'm not to judge his heart, I'm not to judge his motive, and I'm certainly not to judge his soul. My God will be the avenger of souls, he will be the avenger of the righteousness, he will have the last say, his justice will be served. And that guy may end up in glory with God, and I pray he does. But because justice is served not by me, I know many of you want your own justice, you know what I'm saying, someone cut you off, you're looking for a baseball down in your back seat. Chuck that thing through somebody's window. You know what I'm saying? I'll show you justice, you know. Justice isn't yours to have. It's not yours to seek after. It's not yours to gain. And so listen, when justice is God's, it frees me to love. I don't have to worry. That person's penance, that person's debt, he will be held accountable. It will either be seen through the lens of Christ, like me, justified, innocent, or it won't. But that's not me to determine. And that's the power of the scripture. God's justice will not go back. It's proved and seen real by you living out your faith in serving the saints. Loving the saints. And he says, as you still do. So this begs me the question, though there's many ways that we can serve the saints, I figured it would be poignant within this context to talk about how we can serve each other in speaking the truth in love. So first on the speaking side, can we have a moment? If you're ever desirous of serving the saints by speaking the truth in love, let me encourage you with a few things. First of all, the question is, what is truth? 
I got a lot of people who at times have come to me and they've tried to speak the truth in love and they've come with their self-help book. You see right in here, in this book right here, in chapter 8, page 36, it says this. I don't care. Show me the text. Let's wrestle with the text. You better come with truth and you better come with the scripture. You better have sought it out. You better have learned it. You better have sought counsel in it. Better not just be reading one commentary on the text and thinking that because that one man said that this was the, the description of that text, then all of a sudden that makes it true. Seek it out. We can serve each other in powerful ways if we speak the truth, the scripture, in love. I'm tired of having conversations with believers where they're challenging one another on frivolous issues that are not seen in the scripture. Let's use this as our guide. First, you better figure out what the truth is. Second thing is, you better figure out what love is real quick. You want to come in the name of speaking the truth in love? Then the easiest way you can tell, and I've already alluded to this, is you know that you've got nothing to gain and everything to lose. And I would say more often than not, that's when you know you've come in love. I've got nothing to gain by this. In fact, I just about have everything to lose because I could walk away from this and you could hate me for the rest of my life. Isn't that great about the picture of Christ on the cross? Listen, as he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. This powerful picture, they don't even understand how deep the love is that's holding me to this cross. Do you get that? And at times in these moments of serving the saints by speaking the truth in love, do you know that yes, at times you will play the martyr? Yes, at times, they will not understand the depth of your love. You won't get it. I love you so much, that's why I've come here. I haven't slept for six nights. For those of you that know and you have spoken the truth and love to people before, there's those moments of angst, isn't it? There's my moments when I've had to share some difficult things with people and I've literally stayed up at night. And you're rehearsing the conversation over and over in your mind, aren't you? Because you know how fragile it is. You know what I say? It's become too fragile. It's become too fragile. If I'm that worried, when I know my heart is in love, then you know what's happened? Then we need to change our heart on the receiving end. Amen? So let's talk about that. If you're coming in truth, then you better be knowing the truth and you better be coming in love. And if you're going to receive it, receive this truth in love, if we're going to serve the saints, by speaking this truth, then let me tell you this. First, you receive the words in humility. You be slow to speak and quick to listen. You guys will remember in the example of my brother, the elder who had uh, dehumanized me. I, I share with you, my inclination inside was to tackle him through the drywall. Like, getting excited about that thought, it was sinful. But God was gracious, and I kept my mouth closed. I didn't come and battle back. I listened in humility, slow to speak, quick to listen. If we're going to create a culture, and I desire that, and I'm pretty sure we see it in the Scripture, where maturity and speaking the truth and love is connected, if we want that, then we've got to create that culture. Well, how do we create it? The people who are speaking it come in truth and love, and the people that are receiving it sit in humility. Just listen. They take in and they process. What's true about this? I, 
I have some questions. I have some clarifying, like, tell me more what you mean by this, because this is hard to hear. It's hard to hear, and admit that. It's okay. These are hard words to hear. All I know is this, is if we receive these words in humility, and we encourage the sharing of truth, then what it shows is we got a whole bunch of people that care about a whole bunch of other people, and that's what I see in the Scripture. A church that really cares that we grow up in the faith, so much so that we're going to start speaking the truth in love. We're going to start serving the saints by not backing away and loving cowardice. Are you with me? But, but we have to create that culture. We have to have some people bold enough to start encouraging people. We have to have some receivers of truth bold enough to listen in humility. Even at the hardest of encouragements and the toughest of statements. Listen, I don't want to be a part of a culture where it just looks like everybody is fine. Listen, think about this, and and then I'll move on. How many struggles of yours could be avoided if someone who saw what was going on in your life stepped in and said, you know what, like you... I, I see an issue with alcohol in your life. Can we just wrestle with it together? How many dating relationships could be saved? How many dating relationships, let me rephrase it, could be avoided? If some people who saw truth stepped in and said, this is not a good idea. And let me show you in the scripture why. And you're not proof texting, you're not finding your one verse. You're just saying, look, this is, you're unequally yoked here. You clearly, clearly think about the things of Christ, and this other person does not. It's time to step in and see this. You see how much could be avoided, how much we could serve one another. But instead, we fear. So though we say that we love truth so much, we tend and end up avoiding it. And so then we just all run around in our merry way, never challenging, never serving one another and waiting for the one guy from this area to bark it out. And let me tell you this, this is a lot safer than one-on-one. The church must be seen as the church by one-on-one serving one another towards works of love for his name's sake. Are you with me? The power of justice is seen in what he goes on to say here in verse 11. And we desire each one of you, see that again, each one of you, not they or those, to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So it seemed like in verse 8 and 9, like all of you better walk out of here and question your faith. Now what is he trying to get them to do? Be assured. Now, how does this work in serving the saints? Here's how it works. Arm in arm, join together, and you know the power of hope. Uh, um, let, let, me, let me say it this way. Um, so you've had a job interview, okay? And uh, you, you went into the employer, and you thought the interview went pretty well, and they said, we'll get back to you in two hours, right? You know what you do for that two hours, don't you? Especially if you want the job. I mean, that phone is sitting right here. You know what I'm saying? 
Anybody, it's like your mom calls, Mom, I got to go, bye. You know, and you're hanging that thing up. You don't want that thing to go to call waiting. You're hopeful that that employer is going to call and he's going to say, the job is yours. And so you know what hope does? You know what hope does? It heightens awareness. My hope causes me to sit here and look at the phone every minute. If it rings, if it even as much as moves, I want that thing in my hands. That's what hope does. He's saying we must be assured to full hope. And as a body in serving the saints, when one person starts to look back and doubt. I don't know. I don't know if all this is legitimate. I don't, I don't know about this thing over here. I don't know how this is caused. You know what we do? We're able to see it, and we're not afraid and cowardice to speak the truth, and we're able to turn that doubting face back to the things of God. We're going to do this together. Full assurance. On to hope. Let's let, our, let's let our alertness be heightened. That's what he's saying here. He's talking to the church. This is probably, and our staff and elders agree, probably a sermon. And so he's saying this, no, full assurance of hope. One face begins to turn and boom, it's back. But you know what? I fear that we're not intimately connected enough to see that. And so though once arm in arm, all of a sudden that doubting person finds themselves way back here until we see it because they're living in so much denial and sin that it becomes obvious. You know doubt when you see it, don't you? When you begin to hear someone struggling with the assurance, we can either guide them back to the gospel or let them continue to be swallowed by the power of doubt. That's how we can serve each other as saints. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish. (laughs) Same exact words when he said that you were dull of hearing. You're stupidly forgetful. That's what he's saying. We have to stay alert. Otherwise, we will become sluggish. And what do we have to be alert for? For the return of Christ. He's coming back. An inheritance is real. Jesus will come back. His church will be redeemed. And we must in full assurance long for that day and keep our hope pointed towards Christ. We can't be sluggish. And I love this. Look at this. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That's the problem. We just ain't got enough patience. I thought Jesus said he was coming when that old guy in California said he was coming back. Not true. We have to be patient. He will come back. He will return. Listen. And it's seen in your belief of the promises. Put this up for me, this last slide here. These are all here and yet still to come. Psalm 5. 12, he will bless the righteous. Psalm 34, 4, there's deliverance from evil. I, that's pretty hopeful to me. This world seems incredibly evil, incredibly burdening. I get so downtrodden so easily in seeing the sin that permeates our culture. But the scripture says, you know what? You stay hopeful in assurance because there's a day coming when you will be delivered from evil. There will, no, there will be no more evil. Evil will be conquered. Psalm 34, 19. He delivers the righteous from affliction. Listen to this. There was an Acts 29 planter, and I was with uh, all the Acts 29 church planters in America. It's the network we're a part of. 
Many of you guys don't know this. In Acts 29, a planter was killed six months ago in Pakistan, right? He was arrested. Acts 29 went through the same assessment process that I did. Arrested in Pakistan. He went into the court. He was freed. And then he walks out and him and his buddy were gunned down. There's going to be a day when we will be restored from affliction, redeemed from affliction. There will be a day when there's no more pain. The scripture says this in Psalm uh, 72, verse 6 and 7. He will bring peace, legitimate peace, not world peace, Miss, Miss America style, legitimate peace, forever peace. Psalm 89, 34, he will keep his what? His covenant. Now, the thought of the writer here, and he's going to get ready to teach on Abraham next week as he goes on, is if you believe in the promises, how could you become sluggish? If you believe these things will be fulfilled, then how would you ever waver in serving the saints? These things are going to happen. He will remember his covenant. He will show great and mighty things. The thunderous return of Christ. Can you imagine the great and mighty things that we, everyone, will be witness to? Everyone. Scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Ezekiel 34, 16, he will bring restoration. As broken as it feels right now, as pulled apart as your marriage feels, as messed up as your relationship with your parents are, as disconnected that you feel from others, listen, there will be a day when it's all restored, when it's all brought back together, when he breathes newness into it and restores it all. And lastly, in John 3, 36, those who believe on the Son will have everlasting life. Why has this become so cliche in the Christian church, right? Why do we just get weird when we're talking about everlasting life? The picture of the writer is you must hold on to the promises because that will daily remind you and assure you this ain't about you at all. And when you start believing that, when you start understanding that you're the diminished one and he's the exalted one, then you will fear not and you will speak the truth in love because it's God's justice in the end. Let's stand together. Listen, I want to be a part of a culture where people can approach Matt and Jeff and I, staff guys and each other, seeing difficult things in our life and being able to wrestle with it. I want to create a culture in this church where people can be shared truth from the scripture and it can be encouraging and they can walk away in deeper faith in Christ. I want to be a part of a church where there's a culture that's created where we long for the truth to sink so deep in us that we run away from anything fake. I'm telling you right now, we need to embrace this church. And so all the fears that you have, all of the depths of your heart that has said, no, but I'm just comfortable right now. Nowhere in the gospel is comfort promised you until the end. No comfort. And when he is the focus, then we long to look like him. And so if someone wants to come to me and encourage me on how I can better live like Jesus, then so be it. 
Will you embrace that too? Can we embrace that together as a church where we care enough about the body of believers that we would say the truth is worth it. I'll put it on the line and I'll come to you in love. Let me pray over you. God, I pray you will give us full assurance. You will help us believe in your promises. We will, you will help us be changed by your love. You would give us courage in fear. Stop backing down in cowardice, but ready to journey with our brothers and sisters. God, I ask by your power right now that whatever truth just you need to speak into our heart, no person, just you, God, I pray that you would speak it. I pray that you would call us to repentance. And I pray that we would reveal ourselves as the church by seeing how justice frees us to love.